to open your mind and your heart. Welcome to the Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival, with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. Well, last week we discussed what I sometimes refer to as Heritage History Months. Uh, in other words, you know, Black History Month and uh, Asian American Heritage Week and Hispanic American Heritage Week and Women's History Month, etc. Uh, last week we discussed um, those kinds of heritage months, if you will, and affirmative action. And uh, specifically, I explained the reason why they exist, uh, you know, why the heritage months are important, and I explained the history of affirmative action and what it was intended to accomplish, etc. Now, I had planned to do the same thing, in other words, explain the reasoning for uh, and provide a little bit of the history of the whole issue of reparations, in other words, financial reparations specifically to Native Americans, to African Americans, Asian Americans, and uh, Hispanic Americans. I'd intended to do that on today's show because we ran out of time last week and didn't have time to do that particular piece, the piece on reparations, last week. The thing is that uh, <laughs> even though I planned that as part two of what we discussed last week, I got to tell you, as a result of the Alabama senatorial election last night and its importance to the entire American political landscape, I'd like to discuss on today's show the issue of racism and sexism in American politics. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the issue of, of reparations. I, 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 I promise you that. But what we saw last night is so politically important in the United States that I thought, okay, I'm going to do that show today and do reparations at another time, hopefully next week. So what I'd like to do today is concentrate on, really focus on the importance of that, of that race. Now, as many of you know, last night, uh, Roy Moore lost the race, uh, and he was someone who was extremely um, controversial. Uh, he, throughout his candidacy, he used uh, racism and sexism and anti-Semitism and homophobia to uh, appeal to his voters. And he was, indeed, last night, roundly defeated. Defeated by Doug Jones, the Democratic candidate. And so I want to talk about what that means for our future as a country and what it, it indeed may hearken, if you will, for the future politically here in the United States. So let me contextualize this whole thing for you as we begin by giving just a little bit of history about how we got to the point at which a candidate such as Roy Moore and indeed a candidate such as Donald Trump uh, could make their way to the forefront of American politics and in the case of President Trump, even win. 
So, a little bit of history. The States' Rights Party, which was also known as the Dixiecrat, the, the members of that party were known as the Dixiecrats, it was, as it turns out, a very short-lived political party in, in the United States, but it was a segregationist party. Its platform was segregationist. Uh, the States' Rights Democratic Party originated in 1948. It was a sort of a, 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 a breakaway faction of the Democratic Party. And it was designed to protect what was widely known at that time as states' rights. And it was a code word. Actually, states' rights was code for racial segregation. You see, there was a feeling that the federal government was going to come in and do away with segregation. And uh, therefore, the southern way of life, if you will, was going to go the way of the dodo bird. And so those who formed the state's rights Democratic Party, uh, i.e. those who supported segregation and the continuation of segregation, decided that they needed to do something about it. Racial integration, they wanted to retain Jim Crow and white supremacy, and so they started their own political party. The state's rights Democratic Party, and it was the the members of it were known as the Dixiecrats. Now, as I say, the Dixiecrats as a party didn't last long, but it did have a profound impact on the future of politics in the United States. Because what it did, even though it, it itself as an entity didn't exist very long, it did begin the breakup of the solid uh, control, hold, if you will, that the Democratic Party had long had on the South. You see, it, they called it the Solid South, and it was utterly Democratic for many, many years. The Democratic Party controlled the South. But what happened is that, inspired by George Wallace's run for president in 1968, Essentially, a new political movement began, and it was called, what, I know some of you know it, the Southern Strategy, the Southern Strategy of the Republican Party. See, what happened is that in 1968, George Wallace, who was an avowed segregationist, ran for president of the United States, and even though he didn't win, and by the way, he uh, ran... Um, uh, as a third-party candidate, uh, even though he didn't win, he did win five southern states, and he was able to get on the ballot in all 50 states. So that was quite significant, because never before had a third-party candidate win five states. But George Wallace did it. He was able to get on the ballot of all the states, which in, in and of itself was an amazing accomplishment. And then he won five southern states. He uh, attracted, his campaign attracted the radical right, including the John Birch Society in California and uh, a few other states as well. What he did during his Democrat, uh, I'm sorry, during his uh, candidacy, among many other things, is said, quote, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Democrat and the Republican parties. Not a dime worth of difference between them. Well, in 1968, 
Richard Nixon also was running that year. I'm old enough to remember that. I was 14 years old that year. Richard Nixon ran as the uh, Republican nominee for president. And Senator Hubert Humphrey ran as the Democratic uh, nominee. And, uh, of course, it was George Wallace, a third-party candidate. So when, of course, as we all know, Richard Nixon won that election, he defeated both George Wallace and Senator Humphrey in 1968. But in seeing how successful George Wallace was in his bid, seeing that he got on the ballot on all 50 states and that he won five southern states, the Republican Party under Richard Nixon looked at that success, looked at George Wallace's electoral success in 1968 in that presidential campaign and said, oh, huh, that's how you can win the South? Okay. We're making a mental note of that, and we're going to start using it. And it was at that point that what is widely known as the Republican Southern strategy was born. It was an electoral strategy designed to increase, uh, essentially, political support among white voters in the South by consciously appealing to racist attitudes about African Americans specifically. You see, the Civil Rights Act had been passed four years prior in 1964. And as a result of the Civil Rights Act, well, many things happened, but one of the most, probably one of the most important was that segregation in public accommodations was made illegal and ended immediately. So following the abolition of slavery and then the Reconstruction period and then the end of Reconstruction and then the beginning of Jim Crow, whites and blacks in the South could not drink from the same water fountains, could not use the same restrooms, could not sit on the same city public service bus uh, benches, could not go to the same restaurants, could not use the same uh, facilities at parks that did allow both. Everything was segregated in the South, could not go to the same schools, could not live in the same neighborhoods, or if they did, they lived in separate sections of the neighborhood that may have even been separated by a street. But every single thing in public life segregated. I remember that well. I was 11 years old in 1964. I was in junior high school, believe it or not. I was a little early ahead of myself in school. So I was in junior high school, and I remember it well. The Civil Rights Act of 64 did away with that. And suddenly, public service buses and restrooms and lunch counters and water fountains, and everything in public life was now integrated. For the first time, my parents could go and, were from New Orleans, they could go and sit and listen to some jazz at a French Quarter nightclub, which they had formerly not been able to do because everything was white only, and the signs white only were everywhere. So, um, 
the Civil Rights Act of 64 passed in 1964 did away with all of that. And as a result, the tensions between European Americans and, and uh, African Americans really increased exponentially. And so the Southern strategy was designed to take advantage of those tensions. You see, it, 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 it was a conscious effort to woo white voters in the South by appealing to the historic uh, discrimination, harassment, retaliation, the historic racism that many whites in the South felt toward African Americans. And it was designed to take advantage of uh, the increased tensions that resulted from the Civil Rights Act being passed in 1964. So now, the phrase Southern strategy um, really was popularized by uh, Kevin Phillips, who uh, in a 1970 New York Times article uh, gave his analysis of the Southern strategy of, of, of ethnic voting. And he said, from now on, the Republicans are never going to get more than 10 to 20 percent of the Negro vote, and they don't need any more than that. But Republicans would be short-sighted if they weakened enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. The, why? Well, I'm sorry, that was a quote. I'm saying why? And then back to his quote. Quote, the more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South, the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans. That's where the votes are. Without that prodding from the blacks, the whites will backslide into their old comfortable arrangements with the local Democrats, unquote. So you see, it was deliberate and it was conscious. So beginning with President Richard Nixon and Senator, Senator Barry Goldwater in 1968, as I say, those racial tensions were uh, taken advantage of and developed in order to bring white conservative voters in the South into the Republican Party. Now, prior to that time, as I say, the South was democratic, was solidly democratic. Why? It's, I mean, for a very simple and understandable reason. Because the Democratic Party had traditionally been the party that looked out for the working person. The party that advocated for and passed legislation on behalf of the little person, or as we used to say, the little guy. But the Southern strategy became a, 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 a driving force that transformed those Southern politics uh, from, you know, being a solidly, de the South being a solidly democratic part of the country to being essentially today solidly Republican. And that followed the civil rights era, as I said. Now, the success of the Southern strategy was gradual. First, uh, Southern voters began to elect, you know, Republicans in, in, in uh, presidential elections. But then eventually, uh, Southern white voters began to elect Republicans to Congress and then to statewide offices and then to local offices, you know, local school boards and city and county, county offices. And um, that continued up to the present. So 
the Republican Southern strategy, I just, and again, I love the internet. I love the age in which we live because you don't have to take anything that I say um, for granted. You don't have to, you, you don't have to believe me or not believe me. You can do your own research and find out for yourself. Please, uh, I ask you, you know, to just Google Republican Southern strategy and you'll get all of this information. So, um, the Republican Southern strategy transformed the South from solidly Democratic to solidly uh, Republican. More recently, it's been used uh, by various different politicians, uh, including Ronald Reagan, um, including Lee Atwater, uh, who wasn't a politician actually, but a, a Republican strategist, um, and, and, and others. We saw, for example, oh, what, the Willie Horton commercial of 1988, uh, the Jesse Helms 1992, what they call hands commercial. Um, We saw Ted Cruz uh, use the Southern strategy very recently, actually. Um, We've seen it now for the past 40 years. But my belief is that it really is breaking up. When we come back from the break, I'll, I'll share with you a little, a few of the more specific ways in which the Southern strategy has been used in recent politics, and then we'll talk about why I believe it may be seeing its death right now as we speak. All right, let's go to break, friends. Come back, and we'll continue our discussion. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Before the break, we're talking about the Southern, the Republican Southern strategy. And let me just tell you that the reason that I'm giving information about this is that this is one of the ways in which, one of the things really, that we have to move beyond, that we have to mature beyond, um, that we have to evolve beyond. If we're going to have any, any chance at all of passing on a better, a more compassionate, a more enlightened world to our children, to the ones who are going to come after us. These kinds of things have to, the, the Republican Southern strategy, for example, is one of the things that has to put into the ash heap of history. If we're going to, as a species, if we're going to survive, if we're going to thrive as a species. And so I'm giving all of this information so that we can really know what happened. And then in knowing the past and understanding the past, hopefully have a better chance of avoiding it in the future. So, yeah, back to our conversation. Um, I was just saying that I'm, I'm explaining the past so that we can hopefully understand it and then avoid it in the future. And we're talking about the Republican Southern strategy. Now, some uh, more recent, we were talking about how it developed in 1968 and, and, and was used in that election. But moving into the, into the present, what were some of the specific uses of the Southern strategy? Well, 1976, Ronald Reagan used the Southern strategy in his presidential campaign. He had his now infamous story of the south side of Chicago's, quote, welfare queen, unquote, which he used during his 1976 presidential campaign. 
And he said, quote, she has this, this who is this, this, uh, I'm sorry, this Chicago welfare queen, as he called her. This is how he described her. She has 80 names, 30 addresses, 12 social security cards, and is collecting veterans' benefits on four non-existing deceased husbands, and she is collecting social security on her cards. She's got Medicaid, getting food stamps, and is collecting welfare under each of her names. Her tax-free cash income is over $150,000. What's interesting is that while that, uh, that quote is not hard to find at all, in my research, I wasn't able to find either any video or any audio of President Reagan's Welfare Queen speech. It's a very famous speech. If you just Google President Reagan's Welfare Queen speech, it'll come up. But I couldn't find any video or any audio of it, which is interesting. Then, in 1980, Ronald Reagan kicked off his second presidential campaign, where? In Philadelphia, Mississippi. Kicked off his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Here's a, a, a description of that that I have in my book, actually. My book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line. Four years after receiving the 1980 Republican presidential nomination, Ronald Reagan again employed the Southern strategy, kicking off his second campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where 16 years earlier in 1964, for attempting to help African Americans to register to vote, four young men lost their lives. James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, or three rather, three young men lost their lives. The Knights of the Ku Klux Klan killed them. In his campaign kickoff speech, Reagan used the term states' rights, which at that time had been widely employed by the southern states prior to the Civil War as a reference to their right to do what they wished to, uh, they, to do whatever they wanted to do, which was, of course, in, to um, continue the institution of slavery. So using that term, states' rights, was very deliberate on Ronald Reagan's part. He knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was doing by kicking off his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I mean, who kicks off a presidential campaign in a little, little tiny Philadelphia, uh, uh, Mississippi town? Yeah. Then, okay, that was in 1980, when... Ronald Reagan kicked off his second presidential campaign. The next year, 1981, Lee Atwater, who was a Republican strategist, explained the Southern strategy. He explained it uh, in an interview in which he said, quote, here's how I would approach that issue as a statistician or, no, as a psychologist. Now, you know, I, I, this is how I would handle that abstract race thing. In other words, you start out in 1954. Now, you know, y'all are going to quote me, and then there was something inaudible. Y'all are going to quote me on this saying, and I apologize to my listeners for the use of this word, but I, I do want to give the exact quote, saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts you. It backfires. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing and states' rights and all of that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now that you're talking about, you know, cutting taxes and all those things you're talking about, you know, totally economic things. Uh, the byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt more than whites. And subconsciously, 
maybe it is part of it. I'm not saying it, but I'm saying it is getting that abstract. We want to cut this is much more abstract and coded than we're going to do away with this racial problem one way or another. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, we want to cut that is more abstract than even the busing thing. Uh, a hell of a lot more abstract than nigga nigga, you know? So any way you look at it, race is coming back on the back burner, unquote. Now, a lot of that didn't make any sense. <laughs> That's why I had a little bit of trouble reading it. Uh, but I think you get his gist. Lee Outwater was clearly saying, come on, we've got to use this racial stuff to our benefit. That was in 1981, the year I entered law school. Uh, there is actually um, a tape of that uh, that you can get online. Um, just Google something like New York Times, November 14, 2012 article, uh, or just release of Lee, At- Lee Atwater's uh, speech. Uh, just Google something like that, and uh, you'll hear him actually saying those words. More recently, 1988, perhaps among the most well-known components of the Republican strategy, were two political commercials. The first was used by President Ronald Reagan in his 1988 presidential campaign. In this ad, uh, I remember this well, in this ad, the face of Willie Horton, who was an African-American murderer and a rapist, the face of Willie Horton was shown as the viewer listened to the soundtrack in which it was explained that the viewer should vote for Ronald Reagan because he supported the death penalty for people like Willie Horton, while his Democratic opponent, the governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, did not. He did not support the death penalty. And, um, in fact, apparently Willie Horton uh, committed another heinous crime, I think a rape and murder, while he was out on some kind of leave, actually, uh, which the governor allowed. But Ronald Reagan knew that using that picture and using that fear of this black man who had committed such heinous crimes would be to his benefit. The use of a picture of an African-American as opposed to a European-American convict was widely thought by many to be a direct appeal to the fears that millions of European-Americans have of African-American men. Yeah. In fact, um, it was... Susan Smith, I don't know if you remember Susan Smith, some of you who are old enough to remember. It was her awareness of that fear of African-American men that caused her. Now, Susan Smith was someone who murdered her two young sons. She was European-American, and she murdered her two young sons in uh, 1994. And when they found the car at the bottom of a lake with the two children tragically strapped in, she announced to the media and to the public that a black man had robbed her and her husband and then kidnapped and killed the children. She gave a full description of a black man in a dark knit cap. She knew that her story uh, would be credible, and she knew that it would be emotionally compelling if the alleged perpetrator was African American. So politicians weren't the only people who were using this fear, if you will, of African Americans. But Ronald Reagan did it in his Willie Horton commercial, and uh, apparently it worked because he was indeed reelected. Now, um, as it turns out, shortly before his death from a malignant brain tumor, uh, Lee Atwater expressed remorse for his role in the development of the Willie Horton ad. 
uh, in a February 1991 letter published in Life magazine, he said to Michael Dukakis, quote, in part because of our successful manipulation of his campaign themes, George Bush won handily. In 1988, Mr. Atwater said, quote, in fighting Michael Dukakis, I said that I would strip the bark off of this little bastard, unquote. Again, I apologize for the, for the language. Uh, and, quote, make Willie Horton his running mate, unquote. I'm sorry for both statements. The first for its naked cruelty, the second because it makes me sound racist, which I am not, he said. My illness has helped me to see that what was missing in society is what was missing in me, a little heart a lot of brotherhood. I don't know who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be made to speak to this spiritual vacuum at the heart of the American society, this tumor of the soul. So Willie Horton did, I'm sorry, Willie Horton, I'm sorry, Lee Atwater did live to regret his um, deliberate use of racism in uh, the campaigns that he helped run for the Republicans. Now, the second famous commercial uh, of the Southern Strategy was used by Republican Senator in 1992, was used by Republican Senator Jesse Helms in his re-election campaign. He, uh, it was called the, the, the Hands commercial. In the commercial, it depicted uh, a pair of hands that were clearly those of a, a white American man tearing up what was apparently a notice that he had been turned down for a job for which he had applied. You know, it was like a pink slip or, or, I don't know, maybe it was he had been fired or, or maybe he had just been turned down for a job. And it was this uh, white male hand, you know, just sort of tearing up the, uh, that, that notice. And the uh, soundtrack of that commercial said, quote, you needed that job and you were the best qualified, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt, who was, you know, uh, Senator Helms' African-American opponent, Democratic opponent, Harvey Gantt, <clears throat> excuse me, Harvey Gantt says that it is fair. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. Your vote on this issue next Tuesday for racial quotas with Harvey Gantt or against racial quotas with Jesse Helms. Again, you can go to YouTube and just uh, YouTube Jesse Helms' 1992 Hands commercial, and they'll come right up for you. Now, all of this, you see, all of this speaks ill of our nation. And these are things that, as a country, we must move beyond. Even more recently, in 2002, on December 5th, Senator Trent Lott, formerly Senator Trent Lott, used the Republican strategy in one of his speeches. Basically, speaking at the 100th birthday party of Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, President Lott praised Trump, uh, Strom Thurmond for his 48-year uh, senatorial service. Now, <clears throat> Senator Thurmond was one of the Senate's most conservative members. He ran for president in 1948 on the Dixiecrat ticket. And he said, he is quoted as saying, when Strom Thurmond ran for president, we voted for him. We're proud of it. And if the rest of the country had followed our lead, we wouldn't have all these problems we've had over all these years either. Well, because of those, in part because of those comments, Senator Lott had to resign his position as Senate Republican leader. 
And he later apologized for his remarks. But my point is that the Republican Southern strategy has been used relentlessly for many, many years. We'll come back. I'll give you one more example after the break of how Senator Cruz used it even more recently than that. And then in our third segment, I'll tell you, I'll bring it all together and tell you about why I'm so encouraged about last night's election. Okay, see you on the other side of the break, everybody. And, uh, yeah, have a good one. Have a good break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our last segment. Talking about the Republican Southern strategy, and I'm going to tie this history that I've been giving you into why I'm so encouraged about last night's election. But the last example that I'll give you, there are so many more. Uh, we don't have time in the air for me to give you the entire history, but one of the most recent uses of the Southern strategy was uh, the September 11, 2013, keynote address to the Conservative Heritage Foundation made by Senator Ted Cruz. In his remarks, Senator Cruz praised uh, Senator Jesse Helms. Um, remember, Jesse Helms was in the Congress for many, many years, uh, beginning in the 40s. He was 98, I think, or 99 when he finally left, and he was a staunch, staunch segregationist and racist. Um, in his remarks, Senator Cruz praised Senator Jesse Helms for being brave enough to say the, quote, crazy things, unquote, for which he was widely challenged during his career in the Senate from 1973, I'm sorry, yeah, 1973 to 2003. Those, quote, crazy things, unquote, were Senator Helms' many and frequent racist comments and statements. 
During his 30-year senatorial career, Senator Helms championed the, con- the continuation of racial segregation. He opposed the Civil Rights Act, which he called, quote, the most dangerous piece of legislation ever introduced into the United States Congress, unquote, and the Voting Rights Act. And he conducted a 16-day filibuster to prevent the Senate's approval of a federal holiday in honor of Dr. King. Senator Helms was throughout his political career, and indeed until the time of his death, an avowed segregationist racist. In his address, Senator Cruz said that we need a hundred more Jesse Helmses in the U.S. Senate. The Heritage Foundation's program during which Senator Cruz spoke, you know, during which Senator Cruz offered those comments, is named the Jesse Helms Lecture Series. So just go to YouTube and just uh, search Ted Cruz. We need 100 more Jesse Helms in the Senate. And that speech will come right up. The Republican Southern strategy has contributed exponentially to the uh, intensification in American society, I believe, of the twin siblings of racial prejudice and racial resentment. Basically, it, you know, it told Southern conservative whites, you can't get ahead because your tax dollars are being used for the food stamps and the welfare of all of these black people. And that's why you can't get ahead. Your tax dollars are used to support them. So, in terms of what happened last night, that's just a thumbnail sketch of the Republican Southern strategy. It's been used since 1968 in the United States in some form or fashion. Indeed, I mean, when President Barack Obama was elected, we really saw it come out. I mean, we had, was it Senator I'm not sure which one. Uh, Newt, Newt Gingrich, actually. Um, he used to be in the House, of course, uh, and is now just a Republican strategist. In 1912, he called Senator, or then Senator Barack Obama, or President, I'm sorry, Barack Obama, a food stamp president. A food stamp president. And there are so many other examples of President Obama being referred to in racial terms. Uh, using racial slurs, if you will, if not racial epithets themselves. So it is not dead yet, but I do believe that perhaps it is beginning to fade away. Perhaps the Southern strategy, the Republican Southern strategy, is beginning to see its death. Oh, what was it, two months ago? Democrats ran the slate, ran the table all over the country in local and state elections. And then last night... Roy Moore was soundly defeated, soundly defeated in Alabama. And this is a person who basically ran wholeheartedly on the Southern strategy. He used racism time and time again. He used homophobia time and time again. He used anti-Semitism time and time again in his campaign. He was, in my view, um a very, very dangerous figure to have emerged in American politics. And had he won, it would have been a signal, I believe, that there is still life, there is still breath in that horrible, racist, historical Republican Southern strategy. But because the voters of the state of Alabama said, enough is enough, because this person is... A serial pedophile? 
because he violated 14-year-old girls? I mean, of course, they're all accusations, but they are credible accusations. On top of his racism? On top of his anti-Semitism? On top of his homophobia? No. Enough is enough. We've seen the likes of this person for years now in American politics, especially in the South, but not only the South, but especially in the South, and we reject him. Young white millennials in the, by the droves are saying, no, not us, not our generation. No, maybe our parents and our grandparents' generation, but not us. And I thank those young white millennials for that, for being people of conscience and integrity who are saying, we're not going there. I thank the African-American voting population in Alabama who showed up in droves last night. African-Americans showed up in numbers that equaled the numbers in which they showed up in the 2008 presidential election in which Barack Obama was elected. African-Americans showed up. I thank all of the older European-American voters, not even the millennials, but the older European-American voters in Alabama last night who said, nope, that's a bridge too far. We're not going there. Everyone who supported decency last night, everyone who supported justice last night, everyone who supported right last night, I thank you for your vote because you sent a strong signal to the Republican Party that you may have been able to use the Southern strategy successfully for the past 40 to 50 years, but it's pretty much over now. It's pretty much over now. We are not going to be manipulated anymore. You are not going to be able to use mental manipulation, emotional manipulation, hatred, and racism to impact our vote and our thinking. So I'm encouraged. I'm really encouraged. Now, of course, it was a close election. Uh, Roy Moore only lost by two percentage points. But it was a loss nonetheless. And I think as we continue on in the future, people of goodwill and conscience and integrity of all races, you know, black people, white people, Hispanic American people, Native American people, Asian American people, are going to continue to come out in droves because the election of Donald Trump has shown us that when we don't vote, when we don't use our our power at the polls, awful things can happen in this country. Awful things can happen in this country. So uh, my one concern, my one big concern, is all of the attempts that the Republican Party has made in the recent history to suppress the vote of people of color, of young white people, of older people, they have really, really gone out of their way to suppress, to suppress the votes of those populations and to uh, basically rig elections through incredible gerrymandering of congressional districts. And that, indeed, will have an impact. It will have an impact on elections because the people who are most likely to not have the kind of 
of, of um, IDs that are now required under these very restrictive voter registration laws are people of color. They're young people. They're older people. So I am concerned about that. But even with all of the attempts to suppress the votes of those populations last night because we came out in droves, we won. So I'm encouraged by that. I think that eventually, as Mahatma Gandhi said many, many years ago, in the end, right always wins. He said, think of it, always. Last night was a testament to that. What I'd uh, encourage you to do, my listening friends, as I said earlier, is to Google anything that you've heard me say in today's show. I encourage you to YouTube it. I encourage you to do your own research because knowledge truly is power. When we can understand uh, principles and concepts and histories as a result of our own research, not as a result of hearing it from some talking head on the television, you know, not as, as a result of listening to Uncle Harry or Aunt Jane at you know, the Thanksgiving dinner table, when we can know it because of our own research, because we've put the time in to get the information firsthand, it's at that point that knowledge really is power. Because no matter what you hear from anybody on, whether it's Fox on the right or even MSNBC on the left, you know the truth from your own uh, research. At that point, no one can take you off of your center, if you will, because you put the time in to learn for yourself. We'll see what happens next year in 2018. In 2018, of course, next year we have the congressional elections, the House and the Senate. In my view and in the view of others, they are now both up for grabs. The Republicans, of course, control both houses right now. We'll see. We'll see what happens next year. But both houses, both the Senate and the House, the House of Representatives, may be up for grabs. And Democrats may take one, if not both, of those houses. And if they do, the Trump agenda will surely, to the extent that it's possible, to the extent that the legislative branch can indeed put controls on the executive branch, uh, the Trump agenda will be stalled in its tracks. But in order for that to happen, what happened last night has to be, uh, it, it has to happen again. You know, it has to be duplicated next year. So if you are a progressive, and clearly I am, <laughs> I encourage you to be encouraged by what happened a couple of months ago and by what happened last night. Get out there, work the phone banks, knock on doors, do what you need to do to bring the coalition of progressive young white millennials out, to bring folks of color out, to bring senior citizens out, so that we can indeed take our country back. <laughs> That's one of the, that, that phrase we... we 
we want to take our country back is one of those coded phrases that's been used in the, as part of the Republican Southern strategy. Taking our country back, we all know what that implies. The majority, uh, the racial majority in the United States, European Americans, taking their country back from all of these folks of color. Well, we need to use that same language. And it's not just folks of color, of course. It's any person of, of integrity and goodwill. It's a coalition of the good. We need to take our country back. So use last night what happened in that Alabama race last night. Doug Jones's amazing victory. Use that as encouragement to go out there next year during the congressional elections and get that coalition of the good out and to the polls. Listen, everybody, we've got to get out of here. But I thank you for listening this morning. And I want to say that you are the best listeners in the world. I appreciate your uh, tuning in every week. Take care, everybody. We'll be here next week, same time. And we'll have our latest edition of The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Dial, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week.